Welcome to another edition of Cloud Unfiltered. We're here at a special edition at KubeCon in Chicago, the Windy City. Um, my guest is Neil Creswell, who has been on here many, many times, and we always love having him Good back. Time. This Good is the time. third. Time. You Good might have been on. Time. You might have been on the most times out of anybody I'll else on, on the show. I'll take that. So we should probably have some kind of award to, like, you know, <laughs> Passover or something like that. But I always enjoy talking to you. So um, you know, it's, it's great to have you back. Um, so you know, we were chatting a little bit about you know some of the projects that that you're working on right now, and one of those projects sound pretty interesting. Um, you know, so there's this whole idea. Let me just frame up the the problem statement as I understand it, and then okay. you can correct let's me. See. Let's see. You can correct me. Um, so there's this thing called Edge, and everybody wants to create these edge computing environments. Mm -hmm. And depending on what kind of technology you use, there's either a lot of capacity and storage and things like that, um, or there might not be, and you might be constrained. So you have a few scenarios right now. You could either use full Kubernetes, which usually needs around the three node cluster, or you could go Docker, which has its own set of issues where when you want to go upgrade, when you want to do things, it can have problems, or maybe you just want a few microservices to mm -hmm. do certain things. So that has its own set of problems in itself. So what Neil's company came out with, or maybe Neil himself, I don't know, maybe this came out of your brain and I have no idea, but I'll let him talk in a sec. Um, you know, is this this K2D, is right, right? K2D? Correct, K2D.io. And it is, I don't, I don't want to say a translator maybe, a translator between Kubernetes calls, and maybe I'm putting this the right way, wrong way, to something that is Docker. So you can actually act as if it's Kubernetes, but physically only need the resources that Docker would need because you're really only using Docker at the other end. So did I frame that up right? Yeah, or? so we're done now. Um, okay, that's it, that's the show. <laughs> so I I like to describe it as Kubernetes with speech marks over it because if I say it's Kubernetes, um, then the Kubernetes ecosystem will, will get up in arms. So it is a Kubernetes emulator that does real-time real-time translation to Docker API calls. And why would you need that? Well, in a perfect world, you wouldn't, right? So in a perfect world, you've got devices all the way through your IT landscape that have sufficient capacity to run the technologies that you need to run your business applications. And that's, that's a perfect world. In reality, the further you get away from the data center, the smaller the hardware gets and the more constraints are imposed, like you're using SD cards, which have a very short wear life cycle. You can pay a fortune and get better ones, but they all, regardless, they have a, have a relatively short wear life cycle. And when you get out to the industrial edge, which is where we really targeted K2D for, you're talking about machinery that is battle-hardened, specific form factor. It's not a PC form factor, it's a specific form factor that clips into a cabinet in a production line. The cycle time for getting new versions of these, these industrial devices out into the field certified is quite long. And so still today, most of the hardware vendors who sell these industrial compute modules are using ARM v6 or ARM v7 CPUs with 512 meg or one gig of RAM, right? And that's that's the mainstream workhorse of industrial compute out in factories. And it's it's the mainstay of the new industry for transformation and the 
the running of containerized applications at the far edge close to machinery, right? So that's that's kind of the premise. Yeah, so so you mentioned the CPU specs and everything else, but you didn't mention the one inch of dust that's usually yeah. that's usually in each one of those things. The one inch of dust, the, the EMF pulses that occur yes. from the machine, the melted plastic that drips on it, yep. uh, the, the, the 400 volts, three-phase power that comes yep. in right next to the device. So yeah. there's all sorts of constraints, and that's why you don't see Intel nuts there you don't you don't see standard PC form factors there. These things are ruggedized, yeah, really well shielded, and the the certification process is really long. And why would you want to run Kubernetes there? Because it's the mainstream way of deploying applications now. Yeah, Kubernetes has done a lot of good for this world in regards that it has created a standardized way, a recipe, if, for, for lack of a better word of how you deploy and run applications in your environment. Then that standardized way leverages the API, the Kubernetes API and a structure, and it's it's awesome. But the overhead of running Kubernetes is quite large. Operational overhead and resource overhead. It needs a lot of resources and it needs people who know how to run it. And so you're, there's this, this uh, dichotomy between, I wanna run Kubernetes because it's awesome and I'm quite, quite constrained at the far edge with devices that are that are resource light, and with operational personnel who wear high-vis vests and steel-toe boots and hard hats, they're not they've they've not built their career in IT, so they don't necessarily have the the operational knowledge to run something like Kubernetes. And I so was, I, it's it, the gap. The, I, the gap it's funny because I was kidding with uh, Justin Barksdale was on yesterday uh, because we were talking about what are the use cases for Edge because he's primarily an Edge now. And uh, so I said, what do you mean the retail managers don't have to train in Kubernetes? That's not a thing? I, said, I think that should be like, the, that's standard now. They, they have to train in that, you know? Yeah. So, no, but, but it's, I was kidding, but you know, that is the reality is that you're, you know, you're pushing these things out where they, the, their need is to consume the app, mm -hmm. but their need is that they're, they're, they have no want to, to or know how to be able to manage that. They just Great. have to consume whatever it is that that output is. The other kind of um, issue is that, or, or, or consideration is that, you know, when you have something that deploys these Kubernetes uh, components, sometimes it's not only, um, you know, that you have to push it down from corporate, it's that other people within like uh, a chemical plant or manufacturing, they want the opportunity to consume these things. Correct. So you need something like Kubernetes to manage these these aspects. Yeah. and and. You know, like it or not, Kubernetes is going to be throughout the IT stack. That's, 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 it's so transformational, it's going to be there. And how, how, do you, how do you do this in a, in a very constrained world with air-gapped environments? And you know, our whole approach to this is, well, let's take the best part of Kubernetes, which is the API, and see if we can take away the worst part of it, which is all of the components to make Kubernetes orchestrate multi pod multi-container deployments across multiple nodes because you don't necessarily need that at the edge. You're talking about one little PLC device that, that runs two or three containers. So can we can we emulate the API and translate all of the API instructions to Docker commands? And as it turns out, you can you can't translate them all, but you can translate enough of them to be useful. So will K2D ever be a, a CNCF certified Kubernetes distro? No, because that's not its goal. Its goal is to say, how do I take some applications you know, in a manifest or Helm format or any of the Kubernetes fleet management tool sets like Cortana, but others, how do you use those and push out no, Node-RED 
uh, MQTT type brokers or uh, OPC UA to Modbus protocol uh, translators or OPC UA routers or Prometheus or Grafana? How do you push these out to devices at the far edge uh, in a really simple way without having to have all the Kubernetes overhead? And that's that's what we've done. So it's a subset of the APIs, but enough of them to be useful. So, so I guess the elephant in the room for me, for because it's funny when I, when I was out at a um, financial company, we we were using AS four hundreds, and there was this service that would run AS four hundred in the cloud, but we wanted to use a management tool that can manage AWS and can manage uh, other things, but it was wouldn't manage this. So, so I ended up writing a converter or a translator that would translate, o, translate OpenShift, because that's the one that I had the specs on the best, into um, this, this API that was for that. Mm -hmm. Which was great, because it worked great for a while, and yeah. we never did it in production, but it was just like, you know, a, a, a test. And, but the problem becomes is, what happens when that, when that API changes? What happens when, when something like that changes? So, so is Kubernetes stable enough, I guess now, to, so, so that you can minimize this, and how would you envision somebody managing that process? Yeah, I mean, Kubernetes API has stabilized a lot in, in the last 12 months. Um, I would say it's very, very close to LTS. Uh, yes, there will be an ongoing need to adjust the translator as their API changes, like with the new gateway API replacing Ingress, so you will have to do things like that. You know, K2D doesn't support Ingress, so we don't need to worry about that. We support load balancer, cluster IP, and node ports. So in that, that kind of negates the need to do something immediately. Um, but yes, there will be some maintenance required and, and we'll take care of ensuring compatibility with the latest APIs that we need. Um, but to be fair, it's no more work than Portana needs because Portana talks to the Kubernetes API to manage it. We're, we're always maintaining that anyway. So we already have a cadence of remaining compliant with Kubernetes API changes. So we just do it the other way now for the for the translator. And and that um, K2DIO, is that open source? It's source available. Uh, so what does that mean? <laughs> it, it means the source code is there on GitHub. Um, okay. you can you can you can see what we've done. Um, it's completely free to use for non-production. Now for production use cases you need to have a license for it. Um, and you just you need a Portana license for it. Uh, which basically means it's free to use for any Portana customer. Um, or if you, if you pay for it, you get Portana for free, so have you want to look at it. But the source code's there, you can modify it, uh, you can even use your modified version, but if, even if you use your modified version, you still need a license. Now, what, this is an interesting thing, because I've never even thought about this. So, so what if somebody wants to contribute to your project? They can contribute. Uh, what they contribute becomes the ownership of, of K2D, okay. in which case, Portana. Okay, interesting, interesting. I mean, and by the way, we, we already have PRs open of people contributing under that license. So. Which, which is cool. I mean, you know, I, I will never fault somebody for, for trying to, to make money on something that, that is free or open source. Because at the end of the day, I mean, you know, we, we all know that in order to remain in business, you have to do something unless you have another gig, but then how are you maintaining your product? So, you know, you have to kind of find that balance, which is always difficult. And, and so some people are, you know, really on the other side of the fence on this, but mm -hmm. to me, I'm like, I'm like right down the middle. I'm like, you know, I, I think you, I think everybody deserves to make money. You know, um, so, so, 
it's 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 a hard thing though you know it definitely it's, is it's a hard thing and and Fortina is an open core company we have the open source product and there's million plus monthly users of that and we we invest very heavily maintaining a, a really vibrant open source community and then we have a commercial version um, because of the use case of k2d we thought it aligned better to the commercial customer it's in a uh, industry for transformation project, sure, everything is supportable and licensed. There's, there's no, there's no notion of it being completely free and, yeah, and unsupported. So it just, it just aligned better to that commercial use case, and that's why we did it that way. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so going back to Edge a little bit, you know, it's funny because this seems to be the year of Edge. Like I mm-hmm. hear everybody talking about Edge. I always get the pulse of like what a KubeCon is talking about. And this one has been, can I say edgy? It's been an edgy conference. And I hate the term edge. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it because it's actually meaningless. The term edge is meaningless. So does it simply mean a data center that's over there, not here? Uh, does it mean telco edge, i.e. Uh, servers uh, in a 4G or 5G base station? Does it mean a rack of servers uh, on an airplane that's traveling around? Um, what, is act- what does edge actually mean? And if you ask five people, you'll get 15 different responses. So I, I, I like to say, what's the use case we're trying to solve? So you know, telco edge is one, IoT is another, industrial IoT is another. What's the use case you're trying to solve and have products for that use case as opposed to this wrapper edge, which is dangerously meaningless. And we, we all know it means not the data center, but it also means not the cloud but it kind of means the cloud because you're talking CDN and you've got the likes of Flyter IO, which uh, Edge, so hang on, so it doesn't mean the cloud, it does not mean the cloud. And that's why I say it, it's it's quite a dangerous term to use. Should we get into what is DevOps then? Or is that, you no. know? <laughs> no. No, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, and this is a problem because there's not like a lexicon or a dictionary for any of these terms. So everybody has their own ideas based on their experience, based yep. on what they've done you know, what these terms mean, but, but there's no consensus among everybody about, you know, what these things are, especially edge. I mean, edge could mean, okay, uh, you have a sensor out somewhere that you're just grabbing data from. That's an edge. It's, it's maybe it's just something that's 4g connected and it's sending data yep. back, you know, or. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, there, there are definitions that they talk about network edge, uh, I think, I think it's gateway, uh, device edge, far edge, and, and there's a whole different definition, and it's basically the further away you get from your core processing, um, and the closer you get to the device or the user, it is the definition that, that some people use for edge. It's still a bit confusing, but for, for me, it, it's, it really does matter what is the device you're serving, what's, what's the capability of the device, like a rack of Intel servers inside a, in, inside a container ship that's edge, but that is big old grunty hardware that can run anything versus a tiny little NXP semiconductors ARM32 device that is in a smart battery for, for battery monitoring and metering. That's edge too, but my goodness, they're different. So yeah, it, it's what's the use case you're trying to serve? Is it, is it IoT? Is it industrial IoT? Is it network edge? Is it, is it remote data center CDN? That makes more sense to me using the use case as a, as a, as a definition rather than just edge. And, and would you say that maybe attributes have to do with it too? So something that might not always be connected, something that might, you know, uh, you know, uh, need some kind of distribution that's not, you know, so, so are there other attributes that would, you know, kind of make that edge too? Yeah, well, they are often linked to the use case, like IoT is definitely not always connected. I mean, yeah. 
there are some cases where it's always connected, but the vast majority of the time they're not connected. They're, they're, they're sporadic connections. When the device needs to do something, think about a Lime scooter, it's not connected unless you need it. When you, when you, when you do something, it wakes up and, and does sure. something. So it connects and does what it needs to do. Um, in an oil and gas context, they've got devices out in the oil fields. Um, these things are not permanently connected. They wake up, run, run some samples, send the results and, and snooze again. And yeah, this is for power efficiency and other things. So, sure. so and when you're managing these type of devices, you have to be aware of that co- that context to be able to run in that context. And this is also, I think, one of the one of the drawbacks of Kubernetes at the edge. Devices out on the far edge often run real-time operating systems, and the real-time operating system is running a piece of software that is mission critical and therefore is highly prioritized by the kernel. The standard Linux kernel side, what Kubernetes runs in would be deprioritized. What happens when it's deprioritized? What what happens? You know, Kubernetes wasn't built for that. Docker wasn't built for that. So how how does it handle? Yeah, that's an interesting. That's a whole other. That's a whole other. <laughs> a, whole, a whole other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it does bring me to another point where when you think about uh, K2D, you know, that's one aspect of it, and. The container is one aspect of it, but what's the answer to things like all of the infra management, all of the OS, all of the you know how, how do you how to swap out these things and how to manage them? You know, that is actually one of the great unresolved mysteries. So th- there's a company called uh, IoT Analytics, and they they do a bunch of surveys around the pain points holding back mass IoT adoption, and one of the big pain points is is device onboarding. So bare metal device onboarding. And the reason being is a lot of these devices, unlike an Intel CPU that has a generic BIOS and everyone knows how, how the BIOS works, a lot of these guys are custom-made boards with custom-made firmware. There's no, there's no pixie boot. Um, you can't just pixie boot it. You can't just throw in a USB key, go into the BIOS, change the boot order and boot. They, they don't work that way, the firmware's different. So how, how do you get a, a specifically engineered industrial device and change its operating system when its operating system is actually part of the firmware. How do you do that? And so, so that is one of the great challenges is how do, you, how do you get these devices, get the operating system to a point where it's usable, able to receive a container workload, and then get it managed by a container management tool. And that's something Portain is working on, leveraging, leveraging KBKTD as well, but something we're working on separately is how, how do we do that? So a little insight into the future here. Absolutely. <laughs> But you know that brings me to a good point: is that maybe somebody should make customized hardware that instead of booting to an OS, it boots to like it has a low-level firmware that boots right to the container or something like that. You know, that would be <laughs> that would yeah. be interesting. And an Intel board is quite standardized. An ARM board is able to be infinitely customized by, yeah. by, by the by the manufacturer. So that one's actually quite challenging. But yeah, if if there was a way to get an industry standard boot from something. Yeah, yeah. And then the devices can boot and auto-discover a boot server that doesn't require DHCP and DNS and all these other constraints that Pixie Boot needs. If we can find a way to boot, and Raspberry Pi have started doing this with their Raspberry Pi internet boot, where it'll boot off a boot server in the cloud. Yeah. And a MacBook has it with the with the Apple internet recovery, right? So you can do it. How do you, how do you how can they connect to something in the cloud, and be redirected to a customer's owned boot server? and then they boot and get the configuration. That, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, but you, you still have the problem that if, you know, it, it needs to find something on the network because 
if they can't if they're on if they're air gap then obviously they're going to need correct yeah they're going to need some kind gap. Of also the closer you get to the far edge the less likely you are to see dhcp turned on in the network so now someone still has to configure the the, the initial ip address and so now you still require someone to physically touch the device so it, which is why it's one of the huge barriers <laughs> holding back massive adoption is how do you address this because when you're talking about these tiny devices you're talking about hundreds of thousands of them in a, in a factory you're not talking a hundred devices so there's it's a huge number to pre-stage and pre-configure yeah absolutely and and you know I, I have seen um, companies come out that that are working on this project you mm -hmm. know there's there's some small companies I think I don't I don't want to say I think Goliath was one and there was a bunch of a, a bunch of others um, that are just working on their own solution for for bringing those up and and getting them you know almost all of them require you to run their operating system oh absolutely so so it's their operating system that boots to their cloud configuration yep but you can't go and get an Allen Bradley or a Wago or a Phoenix contact or a um, Vidmula PLC and run their sure. operating system it's firmware and they certify you, you you don't have that luxury. But at some point, you know, all of these companies are going to have to say, you know what, there's a new need, and this is a big need. That's we correct. need to we need to recreate, correct, or reimplement this this solution so that it's ready for today. Correct. Yeah, my my, my goal would be to try try and have these have these guys have some kind of part of their firmware, some kind of bootloader that will allow auto discovery. That's kind of yeah yeah the the easy solve rather than having to try and reflash a, a common operating system. Yeah yeah absolutely absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh, the 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 other thing though to really consider is that um, you know how do you implement or or how do you hook into uh, how do you how do you manage this stuff if it's if if it's if K two D is part of or or can be managed by Portainer how do you how do other people manage it is it just like Kubernetes so you use the Kubernetes is it YAML is it and which pieces can can use that. So K2D, every instance of K2D, and an instance equals equals a Docker host or Podman. So we run okay. Podman or Docker. So you, you start with a Linux machine. Okay. You install Docker or Podman. You run the K2D container, which is minuscule. That then emulates a single node cluster, right? So if you have a thousand of these devices, you have a thousand single node clusters. So my goodness, you better have some kind of fleet management tool. It does not emulate one cluster with a thousand nodes, it emulates a thousand nodes. So then you need a fleet management tool. And Argo CD, which everyone loves, has the ability to do fleet management. You can go and add these a thousand nodes as targets in Argo CD, and you can say, take this manifest and deploy this manifest from Git to these thousand remote clusters, and it'll do it. Um, you can do the same thing with a bunch of different tools. Portainer is just one. Um, but yeah, that fleet management is an absolute must-have if you're running Kubernetes at the far edge because you've got massive scale to talk about. You're not talking 10 clusters. You're talking thousands of clusters. So I'm curious, and, and I asked uh, Justin, who was on yesterday, who, who are the industries that you're really seeing adopting that you're, that you're seeing as, as a you know, person who creates this stuff that's that's adopting these technologies is it you know obviously um you know industrial iot you know but what are the what are the industries that are that you're seeing the most of at this point or or can you even say that manufacturing and automotive really yep so uh there is in america especially there's currently a trend to reshore so bring manufacturing sure. back to america right for various political reasons yep 
America has underinvested in its onshore manufacturing capabilities for quite some time because it offshore that overseas, sure. right? So as it's bringing manufacturing back, it needs to modernize or in fact even re reinstate its manufacturing capability. So there's a lot of investment in building out the manufacturing capabilities. And if it's not in America, it's the Americas, plural. Um, so there's investment in building, building that out. So we're seeing that a lot here in America and in Europe, we're seeing a, a lot of a lot of focus on cost efficiency. You know, the the cost of of power has skyrocketed, mm. and so they're looking at ways of getting better efficiency from their plant and machinery. You know, you know, using less power, um, dark sites. You know, turning off lights and air conditioning when there's no people present. There's a bunch of of capability around getting better efficiency, um, but also uh, automation, quality control. You know, quality control is is huge. You know, if you if you only run two or three checkpoints in your production line and you have a failure late in the stage, that widget that you've made is rejected at that point and it has to be recycled, ripped apart, whatever else. If you can move to a point where at every single step of the production line there's an automatic quality control procedure, which is software and cameras and radars or whatever else, then you can actually stop failures occurring sooner. But even better, you can detect deviations from normal and through your manufacturing uh, execution system in your MES or, and, and, and or your SCADA systems, you can actually start making tweaks to the production line so that things remain back in line with normal. So that's, that's a real, a real you know, awesome use case as well as real-time quality control on every step of the, of the production line. Yeah, I mean the other the other things that we were talking about the other day was not you, but but with what Justin was was retail. You said retail is huge, you know, because they want to analyze everything, analyze all the traffic, analyze the, you know, who's doing what. Yeah, AI is a big one. Um, we've seen some really really cool things. Um, there was there was a really interesting one where you go to a supermarket and you're buying fruit and vegetables, right? And you put the fruit and vegetables into your cart. You take your cart to the checkout person. You, they put them through through the through the, the machine, and she's and you know they say, "What's this?" Well, that is a golden peach. Oh, I've never seen one of these before. And so there's this interaction um, where I've now, I'm now seeing software that, as, as the person on the checkout is is putting the items on the scale, it's automatically visualizing and knowing what it is and putting it in. That's, and that's so nice. so you just put it there. So they don't have to ask. It just knows. So that so. That's, you don't oh, have to call great. and say, what is this? On a, get a price check on... What is this crazy looking fruit? <laughs> oh, that is a dragon fruit. Yep. So it, the AI is able to look at it and know, so it just makes it way more efficient. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I never even thought of that aspect of it, but that's, that's, cool. that's a great one. Also, I can imagine that, you know, as they're scanning stuff and they're putting it into the thing, if it doesn't show up that you've, you know, checked it in on the in the register... Then, then it probably could tell you, hey, this one hasn't been scanned, or this one, you know. Oh, everyone has used those self self checkouts. No, yeah. the the uh, unplanned item in the baggage area, whatever that yeah, is. Yeah, we, yeah, all, we all hate yeah, it, and yeah. it's like, oh my goodness. It says that really loud too. Know, it's like, you know, like whoa. So getting getting better at doing that, so it's not just based on weight. It's it, you know, the, so there's a bunch of really smart AI and, and sensors that are trying to give a better overall experience. Yeah, that's it's it's insane where we're going to go with all that. And mm -hmm. I think it's just going to, you know, this year or this upcoming year, I think we're going to see so much of that, you know, just kind of just well, so much momentum. The other one is actually, is actually robotics. You know, um, Boston Dynamics 
well, obviously the, the market leaders in this, right? But there's now a whole bunch of other companies following along who are having focusing on building inspection robots. And if you think about how much human time is spent, let's just say inspecting a bridge, right? Yeah. Golden Gate Bridge, the Bay Bridge. You always have to inspect the welds, the rivets, all of the connections. And so there's a constant cycle of people inspecting the bridge, checking for rust damage. And now you can say, well, actually, I'm going to program a robot, a very, very special purpose robot to do just this task. And so you're going to see a lot more robotics, I think, running in really intelligent software that's doing real-time analysis of the bridge in a never-ending loop cycle, which is going to give us, one, lower cost of maintenance, but two, better safety as well, because you'll be able to, to, to detect issues quite a bit sooner. So yeah, I, think, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Yeah, and of course, they've already started doing that with drones, with like, you know, expecting mm. wires and the farms and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you already started to see that. Now there's, you know, obviously special purpose robots to, to, to do these kinds of things. So that's that's the next generation of those things. I, I actually met a, met a really cool company who's got a robot that can walk up walls. And <laughs> it, it's based on a combination of magnets and vacuums. And this thing can just walk around everywhere. It's kind that's of insane. kind of a cross between a gecko and a spider. It's kind of, <laughs> kind of freaky looking. But it's got sensors that can actually detect, scan and detect the thickness of the metal. And it's, it can detect if the metal is thinning due to rust. Wow. I'm like, man, this thing is amazing. So well, this stuff's going to take off. Yeah, I mean, there was that. I don't know if you were, if you recall this, but in Florida, there was that apartment building that kind of just went down, and it wasn't like maintained for many, many years. And it mm. was, and then you know, so so if they had something like that, they probably could have detected it a lot, Correct. a lot sooner. So and, and again, coming back to Kubernetes, right? Because yeah. Kubernetes <laughs> is the way that you deploy applications, and these devices are out there in the field. Yeah, they they run on batteries. Power efficiency is key. If you want power efficiency, you're talking about ARM CPUs generally, and the lower the lowest power you can get away with, you don't want to be having to up the the CPU capacity just to run a full Kubernetes cluster. It's, it doesn't add any value. And again, that's why we've got this thing. Get get the best without the worst. Yeah, I mean that totally makes sense. You know, altogether. Um, yeah. So. Is this right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so we're we're getting to the end here. What um what else is going on? What what else is uh new in the pertainer world? In the you oh know? man, so much. Yeah, we, yeah. We, I mean, since I've seen it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we we release a new version and basically once a quarter, and every version has you know hundreds and hundreds of either new fixes, new features. Um, it's it's an insane release cadence with a seriously large amount of features. It's really interesting because Portana is. Uh, two products in one. So you've got the Portainer Business Edition, the, the commercial version, but inside that one product, there's a little switch that says turn on each compute features, right? And you turn that turn that switch on and you've basically just unlocked at another entire product inside the product. Yeah. And this is where you get the fleet management, it's where you get the IoT management, it's where you can do all of this really, really cool stuff. And so we've been trying to bring that more and more to the forefront make it more obvious that this thing has actually got significant additional capability hidden behind a single switch, um, and really, really focus a lot more on that, that edge space while still maintaining the data center uh, capability we have. You know, the biggest challenge for us still is uh, brand association. People still associate the brand Portainer, which by the way is six years old now, with what Happy we did. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> with what we did six years ago, Whereas, and in fact, what we do now is significantly different. You know, full GitOps, full you know, Kubernetes, Docker, Docker Swarm, Nomad, um, uh, open policy agent integration, uh, RBAC, single sign-on. It's, 
it's this huge product now that is really the only product you need to manage your your large scale Kubernetes and Docker environments at any any scale. I like to say you can manage any anything that run that can run a container on your laptop, in your DC, in the cloud, at the edge, anywhere, any distro, anytime. And it's like that's kind of crazy. So, so the, the question I ask everybody, since this is KubeCon, and I've probably asked you this before, is this is KubeCon. What is, what is it that excites you here? What is it that's, that's interesting? Or is there anything? I mean, I can tell you, I've seen so much technology in, in my lifetime now that it, it gets me, it takes me a lot to get me really excited about things these days. So for me, it's actually the solutions exchange, seeing the, how vibrant the ecosystem is. One thing that has become very obvious is the number of point solutions that are there. The number of vendors in that solution exchange that have a product that solves just one problem with Kubernetes is, is quite profound. Um, that did make me think, well, if we can solve the root cause, then a lot of these, these companies wouldn't need to exist. So maybe, maybe we should actually work on fixing, fixing some of the problems in the Kubernetes core. But yeah, that, that's an aside. Um, but it's really interesting to see just how wide Kubernetes ecosystem has become and how many products you now need to consider to actually go large scale deployments with it. You you don't just have Kubernetes. Yeah, it's madness to think that. You don't just have that and a GitOps solution. You've got it and all of your security and authentication, observability, it just goes on and on and on. And so you end up having to need quite a quite an array of products. And that's that's quite telling. And th this one especially, that there is, I don't know, what is there, two, three hundred, maybe more companies in that solutions exchange, all with products for Kubernetes. So quite quite telling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on again for Thanks the third for time. Again. I feel like there should be like big prize thing that comes up and like confetti and all that kind of stuff. But I'm looking forward to number four. Number four. <laughs> well, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. Always appreciate it.